The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being with me tonight. We have a very interesting topic and discussion scheduled for you this evening. We are going to be talking about the Salem Witch Trials with Carl Schultz. Carl is a uh, a historical reenactor for the Cry Innocent Project. He uh, does a lot of work in Salem, has studied the Salem Witch Trials, its effect not only on Salem and Massachusetts, but also our entire pop culture. And we're going to talk about all of that with Carl tonight. Taking a quick look ahead of what we've got coming up so that you can be aware of what you will be hearing. Tomorrow night, Wall Thornhill will be with us. Wall says, what if everything we think we know about the universe is wrong? He's one of the founders of the Electric Universe Theory, and he'll present his easy-to-understand alternative view. I hope it's easy to understand because the complex ones defy me. Um, we're working on Thursday night's guest. We had to shuffle some things around, but looking ahead quickly, we've got Monday night, Dr. Heather Lynn. She's a an author, a historian, and a renegade archaeologist, and she'll talk about sinister artifacts, ancient aliens, and other mysteries considered too threatening to the mainstream. Sounds like a very interesting topic Monday night. So a lot of great stuff coming up on the program. Hello to everybody in our chat room. By the way, if you're looking for the chat room, you want to participate in that, go to the YouTube channel, subscribe, and uh, just join the chat. It's a lot a lot of great people talking about a lot of cool things. It's uh, JV Johnson on YouTube. I think if you search Beyond Reality Radio, you'll find it as well. We stream live. If you don't have a radio station in your market carrying the program, it's a great way to catch the program, it's also a nice companion to listening on the radio. You can join the chat. A lot of fun. Also, like us on social media, Beyond Reality Radio and J.V. Johnson, both on Facebook. Love to have you do that. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our guests in. Again, tonight we're talking with Carl Schultz, and we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com and check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaricon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. That bumper song is in no way referencing the conversation we're about to have, the Salem Witch Trials, which, by the way, is a fascinating period in history particularly early colonial American history. And we're going to get into that conversation. Our guest tonight, Carl Schultz. Carl is a historical reenactor with the Cry Innocent Project. uh, And also he is uh, well-versed in the Salem Witch Trials. Carl, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you on the show tonight. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us what a a historical reenactor is. I mean, is it what it sounds like? Uh, What do you do? I mean, on a little bit, uh, a baseline, yeah. I mean, the main thing that we do uh, is a show called Cry Innocent. And Cry Innocent is quite literally a 45-minute reenactment of the examination of Bridget Bishop, who was the first woman to be tried for witchcraft in 1692. So a lot of our, I mean, we do a lot of other projects. We do a lot of other time periods. But the main thing that we're doing throughout the month of October is a 45-minute reenactment of that trial. And so it's doing that. And Cry Innocent is specifically about that particular trial and that particular woman who was accused of witchcraft? Yes. Uh, we have the, we've taken it from the transcript of her trial, and basically it's an interactive piece. The audience plays the part of the jury, so they are allowed to ask questions of the witnesses. They are allowed to vote at the end as to whether they think she should go on to formal trial or not. Is uh, so it's more of an immersive thing for the audience. Then that's that makes them is, uh, part yeah. of the whole pro- of the whole performance, I guess, right? Yeah, it puts them in the mindset of the colonial jury, and it really gives them the idea of what it was actually like to be at a witch trial in the 17th century. It's so easy to get disconnected from that, I think, with all the time that's passed between then and now. And our hope is to kind of bring people into that and give them the experience of actually being involved in the time period which I think is, at its core, what 
reenacting is as opposed to just you know, any other type of performance. It's trying to bring people into a specific time period so that they can understand what it would be like yeah, to be in that time. I think I would take it a step further. I, do, I, you know, I don't think any of us really have a sense of what that would have been like to be present at those trials because there's there are principles, and we're going to get into this, so I don't want to get too deeply into it right now, but there are principles yep. and, and, and ideas that would now seem very, very foreign to us. Uh, that were very uh, dominant during the time that these trials and these accusations were taking place. And, uh, yeah, so I imagine it would be a very, very uh, probably uncomfortable at times, uh, but certainly fascinating uh, experience to be in the audience and be considered uh, part of that jury uh, as you're performing this for them. Uh, it sounds very fascinating to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating piece to see, and it's a fascinating piece to be a part of, just because, Every show is different, and it's interactive, so we don't know what the audience is going to say. Yeah, so in that sense, it, it probably can't be entirely scripted. It, it, you must uh, you know, have your characters and have knowledge of your characters, and it has to flow along from there. Yeah, so there is a script, and like I said, it's taken very, very closely from the transcripts that we are fortunate enough to actually have access to. So we do know more or less what we know much of what they said. But yet, the rest of it honestly comes down to just knowing the history well enough that you could give a compelling answer as that character. So do you play one specific character in this particular performance? No, we all rotate. And even within the show, uh, actors rotate throughout characters just because there were so many witnesses that came forward. So everyone learns pretty much everything. And I've played pretty much everyone except for Bridget Bishop. Wow. So if that's the case, then I imagine, um, you know, in a normal acting uh, situation, you've got to learn some lines and you've got to learn a character. But in your case, you really have to know the history kind of inside and out here to be able to present something that's accurate. Yeah, because even if you, you know, are pretty good at improvising, if you don't know the history, your answers to questions are going to seem very different because it's, if you come out and you're you for a second when you were a character previously, the audience is going to know. So you do have to be pretty aware of the time period if you're going to answer even pretty basic questions about, you know, what people want to know about your particular witness, many of whom are kind of hostile questions, as you might imagine. When you decided to do this, what was your motivation? Is this, is this because you have a sincere interest in this topic, which I'm sure you do? Um, were you an actor first? Or did this all come together at the same time for you? So I was an actor first, uh, for sure. And I had, I had a, a great interest in history. That was my other thing. But to be entirely honest, my interest was mainly ancient history. Um, and my interest in American history was extremely limited. I think just because I've been from Massachusetts my whole life and I've been so close to it, I think I was a little bit um, just too, too close to the history to get into it at first. And I, I got hired to do Cry Innocent through a different History Alive project we did, which was an entirely different piece. It was a comedy murder mystery that we did about a murder that took place in Salem in the 19th century. And because I did that, I got hired to do Cry Innocent. And, you know, you don't really have a, have a choice if you're going to do a show like that. You're going to get into the history. And I just got really immersed into it. I got... There's so much really great history out there, and it's if you're from Salem or from the area, it's so accessible. And I got a little bit obsessed. And I, <laughs> I'm I'm very I'm very glad that I did, but I definitely fell down a rabbit hole of research that I've yet to come out from. Are you from the Salem area? Uh, so I uh, have been living next to Salem in Beverly for about seven years. I come from a little closer to Providence, Rhode Island personally, uh, where I grew up, but I've been from pretty close for a while. Do you um, get a real satisfaction after you've performed this particular performance? And uh, you, I would imagine, can sense from the audience's reaction that uh, you've actually taught them something. That must, that must give you some real satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, as long as the audience comes away thinking even a little bit differently about it. It doesn't really matter what way that is, but as long as they've learned anything or even seen something from a different perspective or felt some sort of empathy for someone that they might not have in the beginning, I feel really satisfied with that. And it's amazing sometimes you see people that come away 
just really astounded by what they've learned. And that's just really great to see. There's this excitement that people get when they learn something new about a topic they didn't necessarily have interest in before. And that's really just like the best part is at the end seeing some of the people that are just really blown away with stuff that they've learned. Have you found that people, when they come in to see one of these performances, uh, actually have no idea what they're about to see? Uh, you know, maybe, you know, everyone's heard of the Salem Witch Trials. Many people, or most people, don't really understand what it was all about. I mean, they know there were people accused yeah. of witches and people that were uh, hung because of it, um, or hanged because of it, but they probably don't know much else. Well, yeah, the thing that's interesting about that, though, is that I find that the stuff that's more, perhaps more common and almost more difficult um, to work around is less people coming in and not knowing what's going on or what the witch trials are about, but people coming in being pretty confident that they do know what the witch trials are about, but not necessarily being correct. Right. Uh, Sometimes people come in with some very deeply held um, preconceptions, and they occasionally, you know, can push back. So... Oftentimes people do come in and they're, you know, they, they totally don't know what the witch trials are about and they're just sort of there to figure it out. And that has its challenges for sure. But I think the, the real challenges can be when people come in and they're pretty sure they get the witch trials. And if what they see isn't necessarily what they were expecting or what they think, you know, is the way that it was, you know, they can get kind of agitated about it or, you know, even more confused. There seems to have been somewhat of an evolution of the word and meaning of the word witch. And today there are a lot of people that associate themselves with witchcraft and call themselves witches. Uh, it's very, very common and very, very popular. We feature people on this program all the time that identify that way. Uh, do you find that to be true? And when those people, when people who identify themselves as being a witch now, uh, come and see your performance, do they have a different kind of reaction to the, all of this? Yeah, for sure. And the varying definitions of witch, the word witch throughout you know, centuries and throughout cultures is so complicated in that way because it's this one word that can mean so many different things. And when 17th century colonists used the word witch, there was almost no similarity between that and the you know, religious practice that we would call witchcraft today. Right. And that the, the confusion of that language can be um, really complicated because, you know, you'll come in, if, if you are a person who uh, is a witch and you'll come into the show, you'll hear a lot of things said about witches and what they do and what they are. And you're not going to identify with any of those things. That's going to be very different than your experience. And it's because with the exception of really the word used, what the 17th century uh, judges and witnesses are using the word witch to mean is an entirely different thing. I mean, the Puritans believed that a witch was someone who had made a direct contract with the devil, and that was specifically how you became a witch. It wasn't a system of belief, and it wasn't a series of practices. It was an actual allegiance to the devil, and that's where they um, gained their power. So if you're a person who... Um, is a witch, like a contemporary witch, and you come in, I, you know, there can be a little bit of defensiveness about that. Um, and also, like, a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor about it, too, because these stereotypes have been around for a while. But, I mean, they're referring to entirely different things, and it can be a little confusing. Well, you know, I'm really glad you made that point, because I often try to make it not as eloquently as you just did. And, uh, you know, the, the word itself has changed. The meaning has changed. Uh, and, and to... Con- and, you know, often um, people look back and say that, you know, how can you have treated witches this way? Which, you know, of course, we all agree they should not have been. However, yeah. um, they were looking at it completely different. They weren't looking at it as a witch as somebody who just had a had a separate religious practice over here and was a little different than theirs. They, as you said, believed the definition of a witch for them was someone who had a contract and in many cases had um, lay, laid with the devil, laid with Satan. Yeah, it's an interesting thing is that it wasn't so much the persecution of a belief system so much as a crime, and it was, you know, legally a a capital and secular crime that they were trying. 
um, that we would largely consider to not be a crime that was okay, but we would nowadays consider to be a crime that does not exist. Right. I mean, that, that's like primarily the, primarily the issue. Um, and the thing that's important to point out is that when the, the Puritan government did not like a belief system, uh, if they had the legal ability to do it, they would go after you for that belief system. They didn't need to accuse you of witchcraft. They would um, kick you out of town just because of your belief system. I mean, they did that to the Quakers for years until the king had to literally make them stop. So there was no need to couch things in the language of witchcraft. If they didn't approve of your religion and they legally were capable of doing it, they would just get rid of you. When they went after people for witchcraft, it was because they literally had this, you know, rational or not fear that that person was actively participating in. They, they had this word maleficia, the Latin term, but it basically means like some sort of harmful magic. So it's not a passive thing, witchcraft, in the 17th century. Witchcraft is an active thing that you do to somebody else. You commit witchcraft against them, and therefore you are a witch. And we are by no means, or at least I am by no means, and I'm sure you agree, Carl, we're not condoning any of this. We're just trying to make sure that we understand the differences between what a modern definition may be versus the definition that was used at the time of these particular trials and this persecution. Um, it's a very, very different meaning. We've got about uh, 30 seconds here but we have to, before we have to go to our first break, and we're going to get into a, a lot of this on the other side of the break as well. But um, you have a website, uh, historyalivesalem.com. What's there? Uh, so, yeah, so that History Live, uh, that's going to be uh, pretty much a listing of all of the projects that we're working on and that have done. Um, so if you want any information about that, so that's cryinnocentsalem.com. And that's going to have pretty much like our uh, booking information, uh, information about the show, um, and also other shows that we do throughout. Because we do a lot of other projects. Like I said, Cryinnocent is the main one that we do. Um, but we have other shows from other time periods as well and other types of things. So that's going to be information on that, and it's well worth checking out. Carl, tell us a little bit about Salem. Um, I've been there actually a few times in recent years. Really magical place in a lot of ways, and there's no pun intended there. Um, but tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about it, because it's a pretty vibrant little uh, little community at this point. Yeah, Salem's an awesome city, to be honest. It's, you know, it's uh, on the water. Uh, it's got this great downtown. It's so historic. It's got this vibrant local community like it's just such a great um group of people it, and it's fascinating though because it really is like a very sleepy sort of town almost most of the year and then in october it explodes <laughs> and it just gets it just gets mobbed and it becomes it becomes crazy and it becomes chaotic and it becomes very sort of carnival-esque in many ways and it's really interesting to see that transition happen, uh, especially because it, it does start and stop so quickly uh, as people come in. So, yeah, I mean, Salem's a great, a great city no matter what time of year it is, but it's definitely at its busiest in October um, for sure. The uh, community is starting to see more, I think, activity off-season as well. I know that I'm, uh, I attend some paranormal conferences and events that uh, you know are in the spring, and um, I think all in all, uh, Salem is really making its mark on the map and becoming more of a, a destination for more than just October. Maybe you're seeing that? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. It's definitely like the, Salem's doing a great job of really kind of not you know, pigeonholing itself into just being a Halloween town, I feel like. Um, and it definitely is. It's getting more vibrant. There's more stuff coming in. There's uh, definitely more people, even in the off-season than usual. And it's really done a great job of trying to keep that um, energy going throughout the year and not just in October, even though I could, you know, I could see it being very tempting for that to be the case, to put all your eggs in that basket. But, uh, yeah, it's really become, you know, very vibrant. Uh, we are, you know... We do shows throughout the year, uh, not just in October, and there is audiences for them, and that's great. And so, yeah, it's really nice to be able to branch out. And also, you know, the non-October part of the year is also when, you know, we can talk about some other aspects of Salem history as well, which we don't always necessarily get to touch on during October, just because of the witch trials. Focus. Was Salem a, a, a whaling community, or a maritime anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, well, both. So, I mean... During the Golden Age of Sail, it was the it was the sixth largest city in America. It was the richest one per capita. 
I mean, during some of the, like, the true maritime golden age, as it were, the name Salem was more well-known in some parts of the world than the name America. Um, and Salem became fabulously wealthy from overseas trade. Um, Elias Haskett Derby, who um, was a merchant from Salem, is more or less considered America's first millionaire uh, popularly. So Salem made a huge mark on the, uh, the sea trade and also did get involved in whaling uh, after that kind of started to fizzle out a little bit. So it's been a really influential seaport for a long, long time. Yeah. If my understanding of um, recent history is accurate, it seems as though for a long time, Salem kind of wanted to shake off its, uh, what I would say is a bit macabre or controversial past uh, related to these witch trials. And it was it's only been recently that it seems to have embraced it and recognized that, you know what, this is this is not a history we can deny. We need to talk about it. Um, we need to understand it. And, um, you know, there are people that are going to want to come here and learn about it. Uh, did you have you seen the same thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the whole sort of scope of Salem's history, the idea about of talking about the witch trials in any way is again, fairly recent just in general. I mean, for a long time, and by a long time, I mean from about 1693 up until fairly recently, it was considered sort of very unseemly to do. You know, like it would kind of be in bad taste to bring up the witch trials as if it was kind of unfair to, to point it out uh, in the history of the city. And I think that it's important that as the, as the city is, is growing and expanding and also becoming you know, more diverse, uh, it realizes that it needs to recognize things like that that have happened, even if they're not flattering pictures of the city or of the state or of the country. And I think that there has recently been more interest in really examining it. And honestly, some of the best resource materials and some of the best books on this topic have come out in the past 10 years. I mean, it's been Salem Witchcraft and Salem Witch Trials history is really at like an all-time high, in my personal opinion, as far as like the research that's coming out and the work that's being done on it. Give us the rundown of how all of this occurred. Um, what were the first uh, inklings that something was wrong in Salem back in the 17th century, and how did it all unfold? So, yeah, so they, it actually begins somewhat conveniently uh, for us in January of 1692. Um, at this time, there are two parts to Salem. There's a town and a village. The village is sort of the agricultural suburbs. And the village has a minister, and his name is Reverend Samuel Paris, and he's not super popular. Um, and in his house, two of the girls that live there, he has four children living with him, um, three of whom are his children, and one of whom we believe is his niece. Um, and two of them, uh, his nine-year-old daughter and his 11-year-old niece, uh, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, uh, they start to have these fits. They start to have these sort of episodes. Uh, and they're really strange at first. Uh, they'll sort of shout for no reason. They'll actually bark like dogs. They'll kind of hurl themselves into the floor. Abigail Williams will you know, grab firebrands out of the fire and sort of throw them around. And at first, Reverend Paris, you know, he doesn't know what to think about this, but he tries to keep it more or less contained. And um, that goes on for a while. And it becomes very, very clear that it's not getting any better. And these fits that they start have start getting worse and worse. And uh, to give you a sense of just the severity of what they're looking at, I mean, some people who are observing these fits seem to believe that there's a chance that they could die during them. They're getting really violent and really vicious. And they do seem to have physical damage done to their bodies during them. And they're fine when they're not having fits. But during these fits, they're extremely violent, and it really does seem like they're being physically attacked by someone that isn't there. And so uh, after about a month, Reverend Paris calls for a doctor, and a doctor comes in and examines the girls, and he can't find anything physically wrong with them. And he tells Reverend Paris that he thinks they're suffering under an evil hand, and that means some kind of supernatural ailment. So this is basically a medical diagnosis of witchcraft. And so... Um, they actually ask these girls if they know of anyone who is the cause of their affliction. And they give Reverend Paris three names. And that's uh, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. These are two women that live in the village. And Tituba, who's actually the Native American slave of Reverend Paris, she lives in the house with them. And all three of these women are examined by the magistrates. 
And Sarah Good says that she's not a witch, but that Sarah Osborne probably is. Uh, Sarah Osborne denies being a witch, and Tituba, interestingly enough, confesses to witchcraft. And she describes how she was approached by the devil, personally, and that she made a contract with him to do his bidding. And even further, she goes on to say that when she signed her name in the devil's book, which is the way that you make a contract with the devil as far as the Puritans are concerned, that she saw other names written there, which means that there are more people in this coven. And that's kind of the like, initial outbreak of witchcraft, because at that point, the government of the Massachusetts Bay feels like they have confirmation um, that there's some sort of witchcraft epidemic happening, and they go out and they try to find the other people that are members of this coven, and more people start to confess to the crime uh, that are arrested, more people uh, name other people, because when you confess, you do have to name other people, and so that you know, expands upon itself. And the affliction spread, too. They affect not just the sort of famously known afflicted girls, but um, Tituba's husband, John, becomes afflicted for a while. Um, men, women, and children become afflicted, and men, women, and children are accused of witchcraft. And uh, by, the end of the, by the end of the year, they've executed 19 people for it, and they crushed one man to death, and five people have died in jail. Do we know if we look back in history and, and maybe apply some modern uh, medical ideas, do we understand what was really going on with those girls originally uh, that were, you know, as they were throwing fits and, and behaving this way? Do we have a sense of what that actually could have been? Yes, there's a lot of theories. Um, I've noticed recently that they've started to, at least most recent stuff that's come out, has tended to, to unify a little bit. And so common consensus seems to be that this was an example of uh, what's called conversion disorder, uh, which, is, which is functionally like a clinical version of mass hysteria. Um, and we use hysteria very pejoratively. It's not a great term, but uh, it seems to fit this sort of general concept the best, you know, that or conversion disorder. And it's when you take a, a small group of people and put enough external and internal stress on them, they can have basically hysterical group episodes. Um, and some of the things that they can do uh, can be very self-destructive to them. They can you know, literally feel like they are being attacked, and they don't have any control over it. And unfortunately, the worst thing you can do for something like that is to feed into it, uh, to tell the people in that that they are indeed being attacked by something, that there is indeed something out to get them. Um, and unfortunately, that's going to increase that exponentially. And a lot of these girls uh, who are the initial, you know, afflicted are obviously under a lot of stress. The Massachusetts Bay is not a particularly pleasant place to be in the 17th century. I mean, they're in the middle of a miniature ice age. It's very cold. The crops have not done well. Um, there's a lot of tension within the town and without. Uh, and also, they are currently fighting a war with the Native Americans and the French up in Maine, uh, and they're not winning. And people are actually coming across, war refugees are coming across the Maine border into Massachusetts, and they're telling these stories of, you know, attacks up in Maine. And these are getting back to these girls. And it's interesting, some of the, even the stories, that the girls tell of what is allegedly being done to them by witches are parallels have been drawn between what's being done to them by witchcraft and what they um, heard about being done up in Maine. So, you know, when you put a group under enough stress like that, they can actually have these episodes. And it's worth pointing out that when the government of Massachusetts really stops trying people for witchcraft, when they stop uh, taking the accusations as seriously, that's when, the, that's when the afflictions start to go away. The less people in Salem and Massachusetts that believe that these people are being bewitched, the less they feel like they're being bewitched. Carl, when uh, someone was accused and taken into custody of being a witch during this period, what was the method by which they were tried? And, and was, were there, was there any testing done? We, you know, we hear of these medieval tales of uh, different tortures and very strange methods being used to determine if someone actually was a witch. Anything like that done in this case? So, yes and no. Uh, the Puritans considered themselves 
extremely educated uh, and extremely literate. And uh, for the, I mean, comparatively, they they were uh, their literacy rate and their education was was very high. Um, so they had eschewed a lot of what they considered to be more uh, superstitious tests. Uh, if we get asked about dunking a lot, you know, dunking a uh, witch in water or things like that, they right. thought that was stupid, to be honest, and they they wrote accordingly. Uh, they did have some tests uh, that they did subscribe to, though, which which is somewhat ironic, considering that they had this sort of disdain for all these other medieval tests that we associate with witchcraft and these tortures and these, you know, strange beliefs that people had. But they had a couple of strange, one, strange ones of their own. Uh, for example, they didn't believe that a, a witch could say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so if you couldn't say the Lord's Prayer, that was not great. Now, the problem is, is that it didn't always necessarily help you if you could say the Lord's Prayer, uh, because George Burroughs, who was a reverend, said the Lord's Prayer on the scaffold uh, before he was about to be hanged, and they still hanged him. Uh, but they thought if you couldn't say it, if you couldn't say that, or if you couldn't say the Ten Commandments, that was probably a pretty good sign that you were a witch. They also had this test that um, they used occasionally, which was called the touch test, and the idea was is that if you were a witch and you touched a person that you were afflicting, uh, they would get better temporarily. And the idea was actually quite literally that witchcraft had a physical presence and that you would send out witchcraft particles from you when you hexed a person, and that when you touched that individual, they would be withdrawn back into your body, temporarily easing the affliction of the person that you had touched. Uh, so they did actually, in some cases, use those uh, and use those as evidence against people. They weren't really allowed to convict people based purely on tests like that, but they were allowed to use it to bolster their cases, as it were. Uh, they weren't allowed to torture people, interestingly enough. Um, under English law at this time, you can't extract a confession by someone, uh, from someone by use of torture. The only time you can actually use torture is if a person has confessed and you need to get their accomplices um, from them. The interesting thing, though, is that as then as now, there was a little bit of debate as to what the definition of torture was. And so certain things like, for example, sleep deprivation, um, they did not necessarily consider to be cruel and unusual punishment. Um, as a matter of fact, they thought that that was a pretty good way in some cases of making sure that you weren't up to any witchcraft even while you were in jail. And they did not know um, what we know now about the effect that that can have on you know, a person's mental state. So while they were not legally allowed to torture anybody, we do know that in some cases they did things that we know uh, would certainly not be considered appropriate at all today, obviously, um, and very likely may have caused some people to confess that they were witches simply because of the psychological strain that they had been put under. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Follow me on social media. Go to Facebook. Look for J.V. Johnson. Also, YouTube is a great place to be part of the show. We stream live there. A lot of back episodes there. I think near 400 of them, actually. Uh, Plus, there's a chat room and some extra content. Just go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson, or search for Beyond Reality Radio. That'll get you there, too. Subscribe to the channel. We want you as part of our group. Love to have you there. Um, just a quick note. We've got a pretty special week ahead of us because Friday night, uh, that would be the 11th of October, right, is the premiere of uh, the new paranormal reality show called Ghost Nation, of course, with Jason Hawes, Steve Gonzalez, and Dave Tango. Uh, there's been a lot of build-up to this program. Of course, uh, Ghost Hunters was launched back in August, the reboot of that program with Grant Wilson. And now Ghost Nation gets its turn Friday night. It's 10 o'clock Eastern, 9 Central will be the premiere of Ghost Nation. Can't wait to hear what you all think about it next week when we uh, reconvene. Uh, I will also remind you that a week from Friday, so that'll be the 18th, another really exciting event coming up, and that is Scaricon. Scaricon is a convention that features a lot of celebrities from horror and paranormal entertainment. There's film screenings, there's vendors, there's parties, there's panel discussions and Q&A sessions from the celebrities and other interesting people. It's a weekend of great fun, October 18th through the 20th 
in Rochester, New York at the Rochester Riverside Hotel. Check it out, scaracon.com. Tonight we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. By the way, phone lines are open at 844-687-7669 if you want to join this discussion. Our guest tonight is Carl Schultz. He is not only well-versed in this particular topic, but he actually spends a great deal of his time performing it. And by that, I mean he's a historical reenactor. And once again, Carl, the name of that uh, particular uh, presentation that we've been kind of talking about tonight, given the fact that we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials, is Cry Innocent? Is that what the name of it is? Yes. Cry Innocent, The People versus Bridget Bishop is the full name. And during the month of October, you perform it every day? Every single day, multiple times a day. Wow. At least twice. Wow. Um, obviously, Salem gets a little crazy in October. Halloween season seems to be quickly becoming most people's favorite observance. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of people are starting to place their uh, their annual priorities on the Halloween season over everything else. It definitely seems to be the one everyone's having the most fun with, for sure. I mean, I have seen more excitement for Halloween than I think certainly any other holiday for the past couple of years. I mean, people seem to enjoy Christmas, but the enthusiasm is Halloween for sure. Yeah, there's certainly something about the ability to costume and to kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say uh, cause trouble because we don't do that, of course. Uh, but the, trick or, the trick-or-treat thing that we did as kids kind of comes out in different ways uh, as we become adults. And um, just uh, a lot of people really get into it. I do, I do a convention called Scaricon every year near the Halloween, uh, you know, during the Halloween season, near Halloween. And, you know, it focuses on horror movies and uh, people really get into horror movies in October. I don't know, it's just, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but we do seem to have a bit of a fascination with the macabre. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, people have constantly been fascinated with death and ghosts and supernatural things. And, I mean, I guess the thing that kind of changes about it is the way we react to that fear. Um, I think now we're much more, um, well, for starters, you know, rational about it in many ways, but also we have a little bit more fun with it. But people from other time periods were equally obsessed with it. They were just perhaps a little more afraid than we are today yeah good point let's talk about uh what the misconceptions of the salem witch trials continue to be you obviously talk to people every day about this you must hear a lot of things that you uh you know you have to correct or explain or whatever it happens to be but what are some of the common misconceptions about what happened uh in the salem area back in the late 17th century yeah i mean they come in tears i mean of of sort of like how how big the misconception is i mean some of the, the obvious ones are um, witches were not burned at the stake in Massachusetts. And people always want to know where the burnings happened or how many people were burned. Um, and they did not burn people for witchcraft in the 17th century. That would have been considered very Catholic. Um, additionally, also just the, the scope of it, how long they lasted, how many people... Uh, there is an old cemetery that I have given tours of and through, and occasionally people will ask if that cemetery is all witches or all victims of the Salem witchcraft trials. And this is a cemetery with, it's a large cemetery with stones going from, you know, late 17th to early 19th century. And, you know, there's a perception that this was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and it was actually, you know, 19 people were formally executed by the state um, all in one single year. So that's like another, another misconception, certainly, as far as the big ones. Um, additionally, there's just some, some couple, a couple things that we get uh, largely from Arthur Miller's The Crucible. I mean, a lot of people, including myself, read The Crucible in school. And for a lot of people, that's kind of where their Salem Witch Trials experience ends. So most of what people know is from that. And there's a couple of important misconceptions from the Crucible. I mean, the most obvious one is that Abigail Williams did not have an affair with John Proctor. Um, John Proctor was in his 60s, and Abigail Williams was 11. And there's no reason to really believe that they actually interacted at all, uh, other than the witch trials themselves. Arthur Miller made that up and then forgot that he made it up later on in his life. Uh, which didn't help anything. How were? Uh, yo, yep. Go ahead. No, if you have more, go ahead. 
Well, I, I think additionally, there's just sort of ways that things are perceived, too. Um, things about uh, girls doing stuff for attention or that everything was sort of a massive land grab. Um, all, all these things, a lot of motivations have been ascribed to people involved in the witch trials that aren't necessarily likely to be true, but fit narratives that we've heard other places that are kind of convenient, uh, whether it's from the Crucible or whether it's from you know Nathaniel Hawthorne literature. A lot of those things do kind of pervade the topic, and people do kind of get these these almost ghosts of ideas in their heads about what the witch trials must have been like because it reminds them of other things from literature. Nineteen people were executed as a result of these witch trials. You said uh, one man was crushed to death. Were they all other eighteen hanged? Uh yeah, so all the uh, so Giles Corey, who's the man who was crushed to death, is not one of the nineteen. So he makes the twentieth person. I see. Uh, he was never formally executed because that was not intended to kill him. Uh, technically speaking, uh, that was meant to extract a plea from him. Well, not a plea per se. Giles Corey wouldn't go to trial, and legally speaking, uh, under English law, they can't try you without your permission. But. What they can do is they can start putting heavy stones on top of you until you do agree to go to formal trial. And Giles Corey did not do that. And he actually died under this, uh, they call it pain for to dear, or this pressing. Uh, but everyone else, all the other 19, were hanged uh, for witchcraft. And once they were hanged, were they buried in unmarked graves? How, was, how were they handled after that? So it's interesting. Um, some people we definitely do know were buried in unmarked graves um, because there are first-hand accounts that indicate those people being thrown into basically, you know, large mass graves dug uh, just directly at the hanging site. Interestingly enough, though, some people are specifically not mentioned as being in that grave, which indicates that they were probably taken by their families and buried uh, on private family land. Uh, we don't necessarily know if that was done um, legally, uh, or if they had to be sort of sneaky about it to get these bodies back. But some people were definitely buried at the hanging site, and some people were definitely buried by their families. The government of Massachusetts didn't really seem to care much one way or another what happened to them, as long as they weren't buried on town property. And was there a religious um, restriction as well? Could they could they be buried with a with a Christian type burial? Uh, so technically, they could be. I mean, you could do that by their families um, because the Puritans, interestingly enough, didn't believe in consecrating their ground. They did not believe that that was a thing you could do. They didn't think that did anything. So their town cemeteries were technically not hallowed ground, they, but they were, however public uh, town land. And so it was actually really more of a uh, sort of almost municipal legal injunction against trying, uh, against burying executed felons on town land than actually being a religious thing. Um, they would not specifically prevent you from giving a Christian burial to a uh, convicted felon, although you'd be hard-pressed probably to find a church that would let you use their land for the burial. Carl, when um, October ends in Salem, does it does it come to a screeching halt as far as the activity, or does it kind of trickle off? Uh, it trickles off over the first couple days of November, but after that first week, it does tend to die down uh, quite a bit, and the, the locals kind of start to reemerge um, <laughs> now that it's safe to come out. Yeah. And so it's not it's not necessarily that uh Salem itself you know shuts down um but it does take on a little bit of a different tone for sure um it starts to go back to that kind of more more local more kind of quintessentially new england vibe uh there's this huge build of again almost like carnival going up to halloween and halloween is just insanity and it's like this this peak um, and so, yeah, by contrast, November 1st is very quiet uh, and very relaxing.
I uh, I live in Cooperstown, New York. That's where I broadcast from, and uh, we don't have one month. We've got ten weeks of crazy baseball <laughs> uh, visitors, which we love dearly. Um, but it's kind of the same thing. Once uh, once Labor Day rolls around, there's kind of a, a, a sigh of relief, and the locals come back out, and, and it's almost like they can see daylight again. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, let's talk about uh, the aftermath of these trials now. How long, and maybe maybe it was never even discussed, but at, at what point did people start to recognize that maybe they had done a great injustice by doing what they did? Interestingly enough, extremely quickly. Um, and as a matter of fact, in many cases, while the trials are going on. Um, and it's, it's during the trials while they're happening, there, there is still a great deal of objection that's being raised by various people. Uh, in Massachusetts, um, there's still plenty of people who think that this isn't going well. Um, it, interestingly enough, as time goes on, as you get to about September, October, uh, a lot of people actually start to, you know, actually complain vocally and officially and go over the heads of a lot of the magistrates and go directly to the governor. Uh, the governor is this guy named Sir William Phipps, and he's just been made the governor that year. Uh, and he doesn't really want to deal with this. Um, and once people start getting mad at him, uh, he decides that maybe things need to slow down a little bit. And even worse for him, one of his premier patrons is a man named Increase Mather. And Increase Mather is the you know most important theologian, more or less, and most important minister in Massachusetts. And he's more or less the reason Governor Phipps has this job. And on October 3rd, Increase Mather preaches a sermon uh, in which he says that it would be better that ten suspected witches go free than for one innocent person to be convicted wrongfully. And uh, as it happens, Governor Phipps attends that church, so he definitely hears that. Um, And nine days later, he actually temporarily suspends the court. Uh, The legislature decides that they're going to consider uh, how they should try witchcraft going forward. Uh, Governor Phipps actually commissions a panel of ministers to give guidelines to the court as to how better and to more effectively try witchcraft. And so when that court reconvenes in 1693, they find almost everyone that goes before it not guilty rather than guilty. And they found pretty much everyone that went to trial in 1692 guilty. And the government starts paying out restitution Almost immediately. It's very much considered by 1693 that the Massachusetts government needs to be in damage control mode. Uh, Governor Phipps actually writes to the king and queen and tells them that he was in Maine the entire time the trials were going on, just so he's not associated with them. What was happening in Europe at the time? Was, was anything similar going on? Were there witch trials or uh, any any persecution of anyone for witchcraft at that in, in any of the European nations? Yes. Yeah, so, interestingly enough, uh, Salem is actually kind of on the tail end um, of witch hunting in Europe. Now, Europe at this point, you know, as of 1692, has been uh, hunting witches and executing people for the crime of witchcraft for hundreds of years, um, but primarily uh, mostly concentrated in the past 200 years. And we're talking thousands of people in European history have been executed for witchcraft. Uh, it's starting to come a little bit to an end at this point. Salem is, interestingly enough, kind of late. Uh, they haven't really had a witch panic in Massachusetts yet, and I guess they decided that they needed to have one before it ran out. Um, but Europe, Europe has had a lot of them, but they're not doing it quite as much. But what is happening over in England that's worth pointing out is that uh, the government of Massachusetts is a shambles in 1692 because of the fact that the government of England is also a shambles, because the king of England, James II, has been overthrown by a new Protestant king, uh, King William of Orange, and him and his wife Mary are co-monarchs. So there's not necessarily a lot of oversight happening from England of the colonies, and additionally, the, um, a lot of the leadership of the Massachusetts Bay Colony is also totally in disarray because they're just starting to sort of get their acts together and start reforming their government again. Sort of long story short, um, 
the government of Massachusetts doesn't even have a charter, which is sort of your legal permission to run a government, until about May of 1692. Um, but they've still got all these accusations being filed against people. Um, and they don't really know how to deal with it, because the government of Massachusetts hasn't had a full-scale witch epidemic in their history before. Uh, they're all going from case law from England, but it's all, you know, very academic at this point. And it really is, if it seems like a kind of chaotic mess of a proceeding to us, it's because it seemed that way to them, too. Um, so much of this was more or less being almost improvised and kind of stuck together by the magistrates and the constables and the government, uh, because not only had they really just barely managed to get a government working at all, now they were being faced with something that they'd never you know, legally had to process before. It doesn't make it easier that at this point there's no budget, so no one involved in this is actually getting paid. Um, and it's for that reason that, I mean, some people involved in the witch trials openly regret their participation almost immediately afterwards. I, it's just such a, it's such a chaos and indeed hysteria that the government can't function properly as it is. And they pretty much allow themselves to be kind of swept up in this. And even the judges, the magistrates who are supposed to be sort of the impartial, executors of justice in the colony are themselves panicked and freaking out. And it's a lot easier for them to go along with witchcraft. And because of that, you know, they sentence 19 people to be executed for the crime. They crush a man to death. People die in jail. About 150 people are arrested and imprisoned on that charge. And even as, you know, as early as 1693, people realized that that was a massive catastrophe for the government of Massachusetts and indeed for just the people of the community. You used two words. You used panic and you used hysteria. Uh, that's uh, kind of translates also to a paranoia. What was going on uh, in Massachusetts or anywhere for that matter that made people so susceptible to believing that this could be the root of their problem? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that while, um, People have been in Salem, uh, you know, European colonists have been in Salem since 1626 at this point. It's still, to them, more or less the frontier. And they have, you know, deep fears of the woods and what might be in the woods, which are, of course, you know, quite close to them. There's all these, you know, animals that they don't necessarily recognize, um, sounds that come out of the dark that they don't necessarily know what they are. Um, they do believe that there are, you know, wolves and, in some cases, lions in the, wolf, uh, in the woods. But they also believe that that's where the devil physically resides. I mean, they believe that America is the devil's country because Christianity has not made it there yet. And while they consider themselves to be sort of um, God's chosen new city on a hill... They still believe that they're doing that in a land that is controlled and indeed lived in by the devil. So they have this natural paranoia even of the place that they live. Um, and to make matters worse, uh, as I said previously, it's very, very cold. Uh, there is historically a small miniature ice age that's happening uh, at this time. Its coldest point is called the Maunder Minimum, and it's centered in the 1680s and 90s. Uh, they've had smallpox recently. Uh, their harvest has not been great. And again, they are fighting uh, with the Native Americans and the French up in Maine, which is considered part of Massachusetts, and it's not going well. Uh, France is, of course, the dominant military power at the time, and England's not really sending support militarily. And so people are living in this constant state of anxiety as to whether that attack is going to come into Massachusetts, whether, you know, people are going to attack their towns. And coupled with all these external threats, there's this deep religious anxiety that the Puritans have as well, because they live in constant fear of their souls, because according to the Puritan belief system, you are either elect, which means you are one of God's chosen, or you are not. And there is no way to be sure which one you are. You merely have to live your life, 
and hope that you have been pre-anointed as one of God's elect from the moment of your conception. So they have this paranoia about real physical threats that can harm them at any minute, but they also have this existential kind of anguish that they deal with all the time. And enough really tense things put together can cause paranoia and can cause panic in especially a small community. We um, can look back at it now and we can obviously recognize uh, how horrible it was and how wrong it was. Uh, But I would say that we probably do some of the same things just under different names at this point in our time. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have instances of mass hysteria that happen. I mean, we have instances of clinical mass hysteria that happen. Um, we are fortunate enough to live in a time where we can identify it, um, where we don't assume that it is witchcraft. But also, I mean, we allow, in many cases, fear and paranoia and prejudices to enter into our legal proceedings, too. And, like, that does happen. I want to change the topic just a little bit, uh, but it still relates to what we're talking about. Obviously, we talk a lot of, about paranormal topics on this program. Does Salem have any good paranormal stories, maybe ghosts, hauntings, that kind of thing that relate to these witch uh, trials and that history? So, yeah, there's there's some stuff about that. Uh, I should clarify up front that I have never seen anything uh, paranormal Ghosts apparently leave me alone, although the building I'm in now is supposed to be haunted, so if something happens between now and the end of the radio program, uh, you'll know I was wrong. Uh, but there are, there are definitely a lot of local legends, um, especially regarding Giles Corey, because Giles Corey died in such a, a violent fashion that there are a, a number of curses that it is believed by some that he placed upon the town uh, some people even, for example, believe that the, it's the ghost of Giles Corey who started the Great Fire of 1914. Um, now, I don't necessarily know if that's how that fire went down. It, w- it was probably more likely the leather factory catching on fire that did it. Um, but the specter of Giles Corey and additionally Bridget Bishop and... John Proctor is is really sort of present in everybody's head. Um, and whenever there is a sort of ghost sighting or um, a sense of a ghost in an area, it almost always ties back to the witch trials. And whether, you know, these individual paranormal events are you know, legitimate or not in each case, there seems to be this real sense that they're all stemming back from one cause. And it's always the Salem Witch Trials. It just permeates through everything. Um, and the ghosts are always the, you know, an, either a wrongly convicted or they're someone uh, who participated in the trials. Uh, the ghost of uh, George Corwin, who was the high sheriff of Essex County, supposedly uh, haunts his home as well, which is supposed to be extremely haunted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't personally have any experience with that, but from the stories that I've heard and, like, the awareness that there is, there seems to be this very strong kind of sense that the witch trials are ever-present, whether literally in the form of ghosts or as sort of a uh, cultural mindset in Salem, and it's really inescapable, especially considering the fact that Salem for a very long time tried to forget about it, tried to move past it in their minds, and was unable to. The, the specter of the witch trials is there today and is probably ever, ever more present than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Do the events of 1692 and, and their aftermath continue to affect pop culture today? A hundred percent. I mean, the Salem witch trials are one of these historic events that everyone knows at least a little something about. Um, and it really is such an anomaly in American history. Uh, we don't really have, you know, like a lot of other, you know, European nations, we don't have necessarily a long history of witch hunting. And I think it's honestly for that reason that the Salem witch trials are so well known, is that was such an anomaly for the Massachusetts Bay, for America in general. 
And I think that there's something so bizarre and so heartbreaking and so just, it, you know, extraordinary about this relatively short period where a close-knit community sort of collectively lost its mind. And I don't think that's ever going to really stop being appealing as part of the pop culture. I mean, we have this at long-standing, you know, thousands-of-year-old fascination with the idea of magic and witches, and that's not going to go anywhere. And then also just this kind of quintessentially spooky New England setting, and then just the actual historic lessons that can be learned from something like the Salem Witch Trials. So I think that the Salem Witch Trials aren't going anywhere in pop culture, especially while everyone still has to read The Crucible in high school. When you perform and uh, you you offer this particular presentation as a way to um, demonstrate what happened, kind of provide some history, as you're doing that, do you ever get a sense that you're channeling any of this? Do you get touched by maybe the energy that was left behind by what actually happened? I feel like that's honestly something that sort of happens to you whenever you're performing, whenever you're acting on some level. I mean, you do definitely become, you know, for a brief period, someone other than yourself. I feel like when we do this show, there, there is this very strong connection to a time period that's, you know, long since gone. And I think that you, I think that you start to realize that the person that you're portraying, um, the person that, even if it's only for a short period of time, the person that you're portraying had a full life and had, you know, hopes and dreams and interpersonal relationships. And all we know about these people is, you know, in many cases, just short excerpts of what they said during a witchcraft examination in 1692. But you do sort of start to tap into something where you realize, like, the fullness of this person's life and the scope of that and as you're sort of all performing together in this space, saying words that were, you know, in many cases literally said by a person hundreds of years ago um, in the very, you know, area, more or less, um, that you're doing it in, uh, you really do, I mean, you, you feel a connection. You re- do feel a real connection with these people. Carl, it sounds like even given the seriousness of the topic, you have a lot of fun with it. It, it is a fun show, and... Um, you know, Salem is, a, Salem is a fun town, so we try to obviously keep the seriousness of the proceedings and the respect that is due to the people that were, you know, involved in the witch trials and who were the victims of the witch trials. But again, it is an audience interactive show. People ask sometimes very strange questions, uh, and we do kind of roll with that. So it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable to work so closely with, with people in the audience and sort of help to educate in a way that people can find entertaining and not just sort of being lectured at for a while. Once again, let people know how they can learn more about that particular performance, maybe some other things going on and more of your work. Yes, so there is uh, cryinnocentsalem.com. There's also historyalivesalem.com. You can find us on Facebook by looking up cryinnocentsalem. We're also on Instagram, also cryinnocentsalem. Uh, so that's sort of the best way to kind of see what we're up to. You follow us on that. We're, you know, always putting up updates as to what we're working on next. So, uh, yeah, that's a great way to kind of keep in touch. You know, you, you really know your stuff here. Obviously, you've done a tremendous amount of research and have taken it very, very seriously. hope you're considering a book at some point. Uh, if I have the time, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> After October is over. Yeah, exactly. Carl, thank you so much for coming and being on the program. It was a great discussion, very fascinating, and I know this is a crazy time of year for you, so thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciated it. And it's really, uh, it's been the inspiration for a lot of uh, different uh, films, books, television shows, uh, and, and more, uh, but it continues to fascinate us. And I always find it interesting when we have somebody on the program who currently identifies as a witch or practices witchcraft. We talk about that because it was really it's really a very, very different thing. So um, don't forget, tomorrow night we've got another very uh, interesting program. Tomorrow night, Wal Thornhill will be here. And he asks the question, what if everything we think we know about the universe is wrong? That's a pretty big question. 
He's one of the founders of the Electric Universe Theory, and he'll present his easy-to-understand alternative view of the world and the universe around us. Thursday night's guest is still to be determined. We're working uh, out a scheduling conflict. But Monday night, we've got Dr. Heather Lynn joining us. Heather is an, an author, a historian, a renegade archaeologist, and she will discuss sinister artifacts, ancient aliens, and other mysteries considered too threatening for the mainstream. And then on Tuesday night next week, Preston Dennett will be here. Preston is a UFO author and a researcher, and uh, he will share true accounts from his book called Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Yes, according to Preston, UFOs are hovering over and landing next to schools. So that'll be uh, Tuesday night's discussion next week. Like us on Facebook at Beyond Reality Radio and also J.V. Johnson. And go to YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's uh, J.V. Johnson on YouTube, or you can find it by searching for Beyond Reality Radio as well. A lot of great stuff there, including a tremendous number of back episodes, special content. We also stream the show live on YouTube if you can't um, find a radio station in your market yet that's carrying the program. And there's a great chat room, very uh, vibrant, robust, a lot of great conversation and some good humor as well in the uh, chat room on the YouTube channel. That's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for being here again, and we will see you tomorrow. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.